Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 11. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very proud to be re-airing a rebroadcast of an encore presentation of Rose Levy Berenbaum's interview. And also, I want to have this be noticed as the premiere of her new cookbook, The Cookie Bible. Um, if you've not gone out and purchased a copy of The Cookie Bible, you're going to want to do that. Um, you can go out to any bookstore, they're going to have it, and you can also get it online through major retailers. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I'm going to attach a link to my review of the cookbook, which is extensive, but in a nutshell, I want to tell you that it has many classics that have been basically reinterpreted and made better by Rose. So it's a complete cookbook with all the good classic um, cookies, and then some ones that uh, Roses invented or basically made better. Um, for the ones that she made that she made better, she's she's done smarter approaches to many of the main classics and made them delicious. Um, so you're gonna want to go get this. Um, if you like making cookies for your family or for the office or just yourself, it's really the perfect little cookbook because it's not an exhaustive encyclopedia. So there's not millions of recipes to bog you down. It's got a streamlined um, kind of look to it with it's got the best of the best. So there's no crap, no filler, 100% hits every single one of them. So you're going to want to get this cookbook if you're serious about baking and you bake cookies often. Uh, just cut to the chase and get the cookbook because you're going to want it. <laughs> I really loved my conversation with Rose and um, I hope to have her on the program again one day because she's just such a great giving guest. And uh, just a wonderful person to talk to with just amazing stories. Um, just a neat person all the way around. And, you know, of course, it has to be mentioned that her writing is, you know, above par. Um, you know, I've talked to many people on the program um, who've written great cookbooks. But Rose, you know, her stuff is, you know, in the, I don't know, Pulitzer. I, I don't want to say there is no Pulitzer Prize for cookbooks, but I would say that it's that level. You know, it's the best of the best. So... If you don't have anything by Rose, you're going to want to start getting them. Start with the cookie Bible, then go with the cake Bible. She has books on bread, everything else. Just go get it. You're going to want it. Ice cream, she's got it. She's written um, the best books on some of the main topics of cooking and baking. And she's written the best works on it. She's also, you know, basically invented the science on a lot of it, too. Her work on um, aeration in cakes... And the science behind it is, you know, of legend. And as as she is, um, she's loved by everybody that I've talked to on the show that talks about Rose, talks about her in revered tones because, you know, she is that good. So without further ado, I'm going to take you to my conversation with Rose. You're just going to want you're going to want to listen to it. You're going to love it as you're going to love her cookbook, The Cookie Bible. Here we go. Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. Today, I am honored to be talking to one of my favorite cookbook authors, and probably yours too, Rose Levy Berenbaum. She has a new book coming out, The Cookie Bible, that'll be out in November. Rose, welcome to the program. Thank you. I have to tell you, Dean, that the only people who call me Levy are West Coasters. My nephew, when I once asked him, why do you say Levy? Because that's his last name. He said, it sounds more like lovely. It actually, I like that. 
post. It's Levy's rye bread. Levy. Oh. Don't, don't change it. Okay. I just thought you'd be amused to hear lovely. <laughs> it does. I like. I like it. It sounds very nice. Um. So for our for um, listeners who are not familiar with you, although I'd be surprised if they weren't, tell us how about yourself and how you came to baking. How I came to baking? Well, I guess it's because my mother was a dentist and I grew up without any baked goods. So when I discovered how wonderful it could be when you make it yourself, of course, I didn't discover that right away because my first bake was a disaster. That doesn't count the cake mix one that also came out in three parts, because <laughs> three pieces. <laughs> and the reason is because the instructions in those days in Duncan Hines didn't say to grease and flour, they just said to grease. And they didn't even mention parchment at the bottom, which, and it was chocolate cake. And little did I know that many decades later, I would be called upon by Procter & Gamble to consult on their chocolate cake mix. And I met the, the cake mix father, the one who designed it originally. And they'd long since changed the instructions. But I remember my little brother looking up to me saying, now what are you going to do? And I said, I'll glue it together with the frosting, which was also in a can. So my goal became, I wanted to have the texture of a cake made from a box mix, but I wanted to have the flavor of a home baked cake. And that was basically my goal that eventually I feel I accomplished. Um, so at what point in your career professionally did you think, you know what, I think I'm going to take on uh, becoming a cookbook author and a, what would become a, a baking authority? It was a really not, not a direct route, it was circuitous because I started out going to the Fashion Institute of Technology. I used to like to say I went from draping fabric to draping fondant. Crafts has always been a big part of my heritage and a great love since I was a little, little girl. And I ended up transferring my credits to NYU where I worked as a medical secretary. And in seven years, I got my undergraduate, my BS, and my MA in food studies and culinary arts. But they didn't in those days really teach how to cook or bake. It was all theoretical and not even really in-depth theoretical. So I started taking classes like with James Beard, Lady Marshall, Alban Cocotte. I went to Le Notre in Paris. This is all over several years. And my thesis actually and my master's thesis was, does sifting affect the quality of a yellow cake mix? And uh, it was not arbitrary that I chose that. It was that we were supposed to take the simplest statement and bring it to every logical conclusion without ever actually doing it. So uh, I eventually did do it because that was the basis for the cake Bible. Little did I know. I mean, I actually tried this and tried on one cake about 40 times. And that was how I developed my method of not creaming the butter and flour, butter and sugar, but um, the, what they call this two-stage method that had always been used only with high ratio shortening, like Crisco, you know, that, that type of thing, which was not a flavor that I was looking for. I don't think of it as a flavor. I think of high ratio shortening as an absence of flavor. I love butter. So I finally came to the conclusion that as long as the temperature of the butter is between 65 and 75, like you're not baking in a hot kitchen at 100 degrees, you're going to have no problem at all with it emulsifying and having a really fantastic texture. That was the beginning. Now, did you, when you wrote the Cake Bible, did you anticipate uh, the success that it would come to have? Because it's become, I think, kind of a gold standard in the baking world. I mean, 
I know that when I was working in a bookstore, if somebody came in and wanted to get a, a book on cake baking or, or to work as a professional cake baker, this was the book that we got. And we would always have at least 10 to 20 copies on hand all, at all times because it sold. Did you anticipate that when you wrote it? That's a really interesting question. And I have to start by saying that people have sent me over the years cake Bible sightings. There was one in Kathmandu. Ah. I thought it maybe in the bookstore, in the gift store. And I thought maybe that's because I have a high altitude baking, even though it was only on the seventh floor above sea level. But I, you know, I gave a hypo well, hypo hypothetical advice about that. But it was also seen in the submarine off the, the coast of, um, of Alaska. So wow. it was you know, really in large amount of places that it covered, but it got to the point where any restaurant I would go into, if they had an open kitchen, I would see the book there. And it was the most wonderful feeling. No, I didn't expect it. And not, neither did my publisher or my editor. They had just published a really wonderful book that totally failed. And even made a heater, she the first said, I can't write your forward because I just did the one for Nancy Silverton and the book was not a success. And I said, well, Maida, if, if you don't do it, I didn't know her, I just called her out of the blue. I said, if you don't do it, I'm not gonna have a forward. You're the only person I want. So she said, well, she spoke to Ralph. She always asked her husband, she was of that vintage, you know, you don't do anything without asking your husband. And he said, he encouraged her. So she said, send it to me. I'll need several days and I'll let you know. So the next morning she called me, she was up all night and she said, I see what you've done, I'll do it. How's that for being concise? And I thought, the world is mine. This is going to launch the book. But the, they really didn't think that cakes would sell in those days, not just because they had books that failed, but because people were into macrobiotic diets. And cake was the antithesis of it. But they took the leap because my amazing editor, Marie Cornichelli, was great intellectual. And she saw what Maida saw that I had done. In fact, when I read Maida's books, I thought there's no room for me because she's done it all. I felt that way about Flo as well, Flo Breaker. And then I saw at the end of Maida's book that that uh, grand, oh, chocolate tempering is best left to scientists. And I thought, there's room for me, you know, because that to me was the secret of success in baking was to quantify and be exacting. And, and, that, and that's what I did. So I remember we're sitting in a ski lift with my brother and I out west and he, the book was about to launch that following fall. And he said, how well do you think the book will do? And I said, well, considering that Cook's Magazine, that was whom I started writing for originally when I started writing for magazines, they actually compared the thermometer I designed and had manufactured, which was a mercury thermometer. They compared it to another thermometer and said that although mine is super accurate, the red mercury one is easier to read. And I thought, oh no, you know, red mercury. And they discovered a new element on the periodic chart. You know, it was just alcohol or whatever died thing that was not a, a quick response and wasn't accurate at all. You know, it's like some of those, that cute one with a little red ball on it, it's so yeah. way off. Yeah. So that's why I didn't hold out much hope that the book would succeed. But I was really lucky because Corby Cummer, who wrote for the Atlantic and still does, he saw what I'd done. He asked if he could come and watch me work while I was preparing for the big launch that I paid for at Windows on the World. And he did an article for the New York Times in which he asked me the key question, what have you done that's different? And I was able to say that I created a way of mixing cakes that was faster, easier, and better results. And people had to buy the book in order to 
find out what that method was. And amazingly, in, in one day, the book sold what a novel in those days would sell in its lifetime, 18,500 copies. And I get the chills remembering this because they had to set up a separate phone. I mean, they used to refer to me as the bag lady because I had <laughs> the publisher, <laughs> because I never got dressed up. You know, I'm not kind of looking where I'm looking right now, kind of schleppy that people have gotten to look during COVID and that don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> but I was just never at all pretentious or you know, had goals to be that way. So they suddenly looked at me with new eyes. In fact, one of the funniest things that happened as I was standing there in my new outfit, talking to the to Marie Guarnaschelli, the editor, when the publisher arrived, and he said, oh, Rose, I can't believe how your book is doing. And by the way, oh, what did, now I can't think of his name. It was one of their authors, top selling novelists, not John Grisham. No, I actually can't think of his name right now, but it doesn't really matter because the point is he was sort of out there outrageous. And he said to Maria, you'll never believe how he wants to be on the cover of his, oh, it was John Updike, of course, because oh, that yeah. was a joke. And he, and he said, uh, Maria said, oh, well, what does he want this time? And the publisher said, he wants to appear naked on the cover of his book. <laughs> and I said, and is he going to change his name to John Updike? And they looked at me like, oh, we didn't know this about you. <laughs> you know, like we had written you off an author who we'd allow her to small printing, you know, and hardly any advance and probably will bomb, but it was the opposite. So it was a really great joy to me. It was the beginning of my career in a major way. Now, this isn't one of the questions I had sent you, but I, I had been thinking about this right before the interview. I remember being in department stores or stores that sold both book cookbooks and baking supplies. And I remember many times they've seen your books placed next to items you'd sell to bake cakes with. And I feel like you've had, and I, I really, I mean, looking back in time, since I remember when your book came out and I, and I remember over the years since when I've been referring it to people or seeing it in libraries, I feel like you've had a big influence on probably like places that sell cooking supplies or, or even like the creation of places that sell cooking supplies like Michael's or we have over here like a lot of different craft stores like Joann's that are now selling like professional cooking supplies. Do you think that your books had a direct impact on that? Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but the articles that I wrote. I once went to the NESFT, I guess, the National Association for the Special Food Specialty Food Trade, and the number one importer and seller of well, baking equipment, but all cooking equipment, approached me and he said, you have sold so many of the magic cake strips that go around cakes they never sold before you started talking about them. So then I, I was asked to create other things, or no, I wasn't asked, I asked this producer, I wanted to make pie plate that would enable people who were pie crust impaired to make the rim of the pie crust is always so scary to people when they've never done it or even when they've done it. Yeah. So, I had seen ones that had kind of a ripple, but not anything that would hold an impression once cake, once the pie baked. So I wanted one that was deeply ruffled so that all you had to do is to press the border in and it would hold the impression. And the way I had to make a prototype, which I'd never done before, but one of my closest cousins is an art teacher and she came to my house with some clay and she said, here, model it. And it was, it worked on the first try, even though when they shipped it to China, you never know what's going to happen. And it became Rose's Perfect Pie Plate, and it's still selling. 
I didn't know that. I love doing equipment. And and now I have an equipment line that was called, uh, it was for the American Products Group. Um, (laughs) How can I forget the name of my own line? But uh, if you look up Rosalie Bearbell, you'll see it. It's on my blog as well. I like that. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, please, because we go through so many different name possibilities that sometimes I forget what they end up calling. Roses something or other. But anyway, I have quite a few things that I've designed that I really love. The latest one is my reduction spatula, where you know how they always say in both baking and cooking to take a liquid and reduce it by a third or to one cup or whatever. And you never know when you get there and you have to pour it back and forth between a cup and the pan it's cooking in. So I thought, why not have a silicone spatula that has markings on it so you can see where it started and where you want it to end up. And you can use it to stir as well. And to my amazement, not only does it work the way I intended to, but you can put it in the microwave. And in a microwave, when you don't stir a liquid every 20 seconds, the bubbles in them will bubble out and burst all over the microwave interior. Right. It has happened to me several times when I get a little careless and think, oh, I can wait a minute. But with, if you just leave that in there and that the reduction spatula in there, it doesn't happen. It prevents it. The only case is I wouldn't do butter with it because butter has a way of exploding no matter what you put in. But it works for every kind of fruit juice. And reduction is one of the things that I've created. I always wanted to do an article, The Art of Reducing, you know, not yourself, but of taking liquid and intensifying it. And in fact, this is my funniest of all the stories. I did that, for, I do that for my apple pie or any kind of fruit pie where I can let it sit with the sugar and have the liquid leach out after about a half hour. And then I take that liquid and I reduce it by about a third or more sometimes just before it caramelizes. So when uh, Cook's Magazine did a review and they wrote about how good my apple pie is, but that quite frankly, it wasn't worth the effort. And uh, Chris Kimball, who's the most exacting person, I was shocked he wrote this. He said, Einstein and I, I or I, I believe thinking is Einstein, that the, the um, hand of God can be seen in the overall details. And this is more work than it's worth. And it's too finite and exacting. So I wrote a note to him hoping you would publish it. Dear Chris, while I agree with you and Einstein, I sure know where to find the rest of her body in the details. And I thought that was the most perfect repartee, but nobody ever used it. So now I'm getting to share it. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Also, you should have your own show. I mean, I could see you talking about some of this stuff on a TV show. This would be a wonderful, I would watch it definitely. You know who I really used to adore is Narcy David. I mean, he was one of my major inspirations. I would never come to the Bay Area without being on his show. And I was always amazed that when people asked him questions about any matter of cooking or baking or anything, wine, I mean, he had a restaurant. I don't know if you ever met him, but he'd always had the answer. And I thought I could never do this. Well, guess what? I could do it about baking. (laughs) I mean, look, after all these years, if I don't know what I'm doing and there's still surprises, but that's even more interesting to talk about. Now, you've been quoted as saying that you're heavily influenced by James Beard and Julia Child. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, sure. (laughs) Because actually, the first person who influenced me without my meeting her ever was MFK. And that was in my last semester at NYU when the teacher went around the room asking each person what she was all learning hoped what was her goal in life, career-wise, professionally. And each person said things like, I want to be head of nutrition at Mount Sinai Medical or something like that. And uh, 
I had actually wanted to study nutrition, but I would have had to take lab classes that were during the day. And I was going to school at night because I was getting my tuition paid by NYU Medical Center. So when they got to me, I was the only one who wasn't studying nutrition. And I thought, I don't want to say what my dream is. And I said to the teacher who was head of the department, I said, there's no point in my saying what I want to do because I'm never going to get to do it. And her eyes lit up like she could make an example of me. And she said, why Rose, there always has to be someone to do everything. Why shouldn't it be you? What is your dream? <laughs> the impossible dream. And I said, to be like MFK and go around the world eating and writing about food. And I heard some people gasp in the background and I thought, is it that I'm so self-serving and hedonistic or is it that I dare to have such a big dream? So some years later, I went on a trip to Japan and one of my Japanese students who had returned home said that if I wanted to write about Japanese baking and the fusion with French, that she would set me up at a restaurant that would be an example of it. So well, before I left, I called the New York Times and I said, I have a really interesting potential article I'd love to write. And Alex Ward, who was the editor of the, of the food section at the time, said, well, send it to us when you come home. I, I think I rewrote it 10 times <laughs> because I'd never had an article published in a newspaper before. And it got published. How to eat, how to have baked, I forget the exact name, but it was baked goods in Japan. And a beautiful picture of the green tea marzipan, green tea I think it was marzipan, yep, that I created on a little oval. Oh, this is the funniest story. Well, I'll tell you what happened when I was choosing the, the figure, the letters and the calligraphy. It was, I sent it to the retired head of the department and I thought she'd be so thrilled to see that thanks to her encouragement, I did go ahead and start eating around the world and writing about it. But she, I got a letter back saying they just devoted an entire room for her at NYU and could I come and visit and tell her about what it was like. Now, as a teacher, I think the greatest thing, and even the Japanese, well, not even, but the Japanese have a wonderful story about how a famous sensei was having a contest with another one. And instead of his coming himself, he sent his best student, which tells you everything that what greater pride for a teacher, and you know this, Dan, to be able to have a, a student who can even outshine you, or at least be inspired by you. Anyway, the point is that I still had some wonderful Japanese friends and students in New York when I was living there. So uh, I realized that I was going to have to do some sort of symbol that would tell you that it was Asian. And I would carve it by hand, but out of the fondant or the marzipan, but I didn't know what it should be. So I brought back some art books from Japan on that, on that trip. And I chose the one that was the most beautiful. And the two Japanese ladies were conferring with each other in Japanese and they looked very, very upset. And one of them decided to tell me why. She said, well, it's not traditional to have character have writing on Japanese cake. And I said, yes, I know, but this is to let people know this country, you don't understand that it's Japanese. And they conferred again. And then she said really hesitantly and shyly, well, at least do not put horse on cake. <laughs> Oh my God! The that I chose and thinking was most beautiful, of course, was a running horse. What could be more beautiful? And we all laughed so hard. The four characters: winter, spring, summer, and fall. And I, even that was going to come out in the fall, I think I chose spring. I said, "Is that okay?" Because I like that character the best. And they said, "That not so important." <laughs> they were so relieved it wasn't going to be a horse. <laughs> Just imagine people would think in, Jap in Japan that there was horse meat in the cake. Oh my God. Did I ever answer the question I have? So, you know, I'm so big on detours and uh, tangents that sometimes I forget the original question.
Well, yeah, this asked of your influence by Beard oh, and Julia Beard. Child. Yeah. Oh, of course. Okay. Well, I ended up uh, when I was working before I went back to school at night, I was working at Reynolds Metals Company and and they didn't have a test kitchen, so they would give me recipes to take home because I was the only one who was really interested in food. And as a reward, they gave two of us classes at James Beard. And I used to, after the class, I would fly home. I happened to live just a few blocks away from him. It was just amazing to see how he felt about food and what he was able to do. So I got to know him really well because I would send him aluminum foil. <laughs> and. Uh, and of course, he was a member of a lot of the associations. So through the years, uh, I got to see him. And one of the funniest moments was when the school of, um, was the Association of New York Cooking Teachers. And we all decided to meet at his house in the West Village and to buy his book and have him sign it. And there were not enough seats. I remember I sat at his, on the floor and I waited in line and I, he signed the book and I couldn't read a word he'd written. So I went to his assistant at the time and I said, what did Mr. Beard write? Because I thought he would write something special with all the foil I'd sent him. And, and he said, I had no idea. You're going to have to ask him. So, <laughs> so I went back to the end of the line and I said, Jim, what did you write here? And he looked at it, looked at it, and he said, damned if I know. <laughs> <laughs> he probably just you know, thought he better write a lot of stuff that he scribbled away, nothing meaningful or no words that you could actually make out. And he thought he'd get away with it. <laughs> well, he didn't. Anyway. I have a much better story actually, I think about Julia Child because I never in a million years thought I would meet her. And when I was living in Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania, my former husband was going to Temple University, we couldn't afford a TV. So I would go with our trip each way once a week and I would go to the girls dorm where they had a TV that everybody was watching and I would watch Julia that half hour. That was when she just started her PBS show. And it was just an amazing inspiration to me. Years later, when the Cake Bible came out, I got to be on the Today Show. And when I came home, the first person to call, of course, was my mother. And the second was Julia. Oh, my she God. Deary, so she wouldn't have to worry about their names. And she said, I'm so proud of you, dearie. And I thought, this is the greatest moment of my life. Here, I never thought I would meet her, let alone be on TV myself and have her congratulate me. So over the years, I got to see her at all our conferences. She was always so supportive. I once called her asking her if I should have, oh, whom I should have as a literary lawyer or as an agent. And she said she always had a lawyer, so she couldn't advise there. But she would answer her own phone and she would be very helpful. So she, in fact, invited me. If she said if I ever come to Boston or when I come to Boston, because they always send you there on tour. It's one of the best places for baking books. She said, come and stay with me. So I told my editor, Maria, that Maria said, oh, I wouldn't do that. You'll feel much too uncomfortable. And I don't regret many things in life because I always have done whatever I'm invited to do that sounded desirable, even going to another country, Australia, New Zealand, India. But she got me intimidated by it. And I'm always sorry that I didn't have that experience. Uh, I can imagine meeting her. That must have been wonderful. I read so much about her and her husband. I mean, it is, she must have been amazing. Well, she was so tall and I was so much shorter than she that she used to have trouble hearing me. But then as she shrank and I didn't grow, but <laughs> it was less of a problem. I remember her telling me once it was Pierre Fernet's funeral, not funeral, but memorial that went at the uh, Tavern on the Green. And I said, you know, I'm writing the pastry Bible and I feel like I shouldn't 
complete it without going to Denmark for Danish. And she said, well, I wouldn't go if I were you because they're just using shortening because it's easier to use on their sheeters. Take a class with Dieter Scherner, who was, I dedicated part of the book to him. I adored him. So I took her advice by take, auditing a class with Dieter. But I also went to Denmark because I got to a, a trip and an invitation when I discovered that I was born on the same day, not the same year, of a national hero, Hans Christian Andersen. Oh, wow. So That's what did it. You know, so I had the most amazing experience there. And I didn't learn that much about Danish, but I did learn a technique of waffling puff pastry that's in the, in the pastry book Bible. But the thing is, I was able to buy a little waffler thing. And it's, it's just a, a sheet of metal, maybe six inches long, and it has an impression of waffles. And when you roll the dough over it, it keeps the impression and it somehow bakes differently. And I've never been able to find one since, but I decided to put it in the book. And you know, a lot of times, I think it's worth writing about things that people can't necessarily get anymore or don't get, because you never know. And when I was writing about Turkish ice cream, when my grandson told me about he'd been to, to Turkey with his father and he didn't tell me what it was like. He just knew I was working on an ice cream book. And he said, well, why don't you write about Turkish ice cream? So I investigated it and it's an incredible stretchy, stretchy ice cream. And his mother said to me, well, you're writing about something nobody will be able to get the ingredients for. One thing is the root of orchids and the other is some kind of garden. And I said, well, even if people never make it, they should know what it's like. Yeah, and I agree. About a, a year, even before the book came out, there are about 10 stores in Brooklyn that specialize in this kind of ice cream. It's Mastic. The That's resin. it, yeah. But the other stuff, I forget the name of, but I, I wrote to a friend in Turkey, and it was illegal to send. And he sent it to me anyway, along with a book of, of Turkish cuisine. And the book arrived, but they confiscated the, uh, the root of the orchid. Uh -huh. But then I was able to get it from Greece. And it's oh, really, wow. so much a flavor as a texture, and then you can flavor it any way you want. So that's why I'm saying it. If say if somebody wanted to get a waffler like that, somebody around here would make one. You know, somebody who's handy. So it's good to know all these secrets. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. to ask you you pioneered the reverse creaming technique what was the reaction um, to the method when it came out and um, when it was new we featured it in the new york times people were willing to spend uh just well their disbelief uh, what's the word you know when you you're willing to, to give something a try and i heard from many people they wanted to know if they could use it for any recipe that not for jen was of course but for any basic cake recipe and they tried it and it worked so i think that there's still a lot of people who do the old-fashioned creaming method but basically some people think that by the you know, that old method that you get a higher cake yes it's true a higher cake in the middle but who wants to have a cake with a big dome in the middle you know overall the this method that i it, i didn't invent i just introduced it and created a way to do it 
using butter. And it's, to me, my mind, it's still the preferred method for most cakes anyway. Your cookbooks have recipes that are very exact and they don't, you don't really mess around as a writer. You're very, very uh, clinical. Um, has this gone on to create a style of writing for you for cookbooks and recipes? Okay, this, I'm really glad that you asked that question because I just realized today when I was thinking about how to write recipes and why I write them the way I do, that there are two ways of looking at putting yourself in print and visually the things that you do. One, they both start with an S. One is showing off and the other is sharing. And yes. sure, I do a little showing off, but my main goal in life is to share the, my discoveries that give me so much pleasure. When I would go to France, I would bring along ingredients that they couldn't get, like maple syrup and pecans that maybe they can now, but they couldn't then, and show them what that could be like. You know, I just decided to share my discoveries. And what I realized is that sharing equals the way to extend and to contact other people, to connect with other people. Now that's a big thing now with COVID and the pandemic that people realize how valuable and how essential it is to your well-being to be able to connect with other people when you cannot do it except maybe virtually. But even virtually is and all the feedback that I get from people is just so gratifying. As I was saying about the teacher wanting students to to exceed them. My, one of my teachers at NYU told me I was a born teacher and I didn't realize it until she said it, but yes, my favorite course, my favorite wasn't a course, it wasn't given that title in kindergarten or first grade, but it was show and tell. And I was actually very shy. I didn't find it easy to get up in front of a group. Most little kids wouldn't. But when I could talk about something outside of myself, it was really easy. That was the beginning of it. And so that's exactly what I continued to do the rest of my life so far. As with um, influencing, I think, the uh, industry that sells baking instruments, I wonder about um, your influence on food writing and food publication, because when I first sold your book in a bookstore and I saw it being sold, I remember that there wasn't really much like it, if anything like it at all. But since then, I've seen things come up like uh, Cook's Illustrated Magazine and a lot of more detailed TV shows and publications that, that kind of break down the science of it. Do you think you had an influence on the industry for, of, of food writing that way? 100% yes. And I was so lucky that Chris Kimball started Cook's Magazine because that encouraged it. And after they, this fiasco with the red mercury that doesn't exist, they hired a scientist. Here's something really amazing. Harold McGee, whose work I adore, and he's a wonderful person. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote to him and I thanked him for coming up with the technique of, for pie crust of rolling butter into flat flakes so that they keep the flaky texture in the finished dough. And he wrote back saying, thank you, Rose, but I got that idea from you. So isn't it hilarious that you, know, you forget your own things and you, but those are the things you appreciate. And I really am a great believer in giving credit where credit is due. Maybe sometimes I give it where it isn't due, <laughs> not like in that case, but he, he has done so much to explain to people how things work and there's become an appetite for it. So that's why magazines have started offering it. And I think my biggest achievement and my biggest battle 
at least 20 years now, is getting people to weigh. I wrote uh, an article for the LA Times called Way to Bake. And it was how things, it's faster, easier, and more accurate. And also converting people to metric. That was something that America resisted when they tried doing it initially. But for baking, when you think about it, an ounce is 28 grams. And when you round off to a quarter of an ounce, that's only one quarter of it. Whereas scales are now accurate to one gram, not to four or to seven. That would be simple to get. You know, believe it or not, I can't think of math on the fly. But when I did all that math, like in the bread Bible, oh my God, that, you know, that I had to go to the bathroom at one o'clock at night where nobody could disturb me when I did the math part because I knew I wasn't good at math. I, I couldn't just add up a column without, with, without using a calculator, but the way some people can. But because I knew I wasn't good, I always proofread everything to a fault. And once Woody came aboard and started working with me, we started reading back and forth. In fact, it was Bert Green. He was my mentor. Ah. And he was originally the, well, the first person ever to have a takeout place. And it was in East Hampton. He was uh, an appear, he had regular appearances on the show in LA. I forget the name of Good Morning LA, probably. He was an editor of the Daily News. And he was the one who said, Rose, I have the perfect name for your upcoming book, Rose's Baking Bible. And I said, thanks a lot, Bert. If you think it's a damn great, why don't you call your book Bert's Bible? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, I've been wanting to for 18 years, but I've been living with a minister's son who won't let me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But you see, the truth is, I had already thought myself that I wanted to call it a Bible because that was what I was intending for it to be, but I thought I'm really going to set myself up for this failure if there's a single mistake in it. So Bert, once he thought was going to do it, he said, you know, Philip and I always read back and forth, especially the blues. Now, we don't have blues anymore in production. This is a whole long story, so I'm not going to tell it about production. And all the I know mistakes. what you're talking about, though. Well, I worked in publishing, so yeah. Oh, right. Well, you know that even electronically, like the Baking Basics. I didn't realize they input fraction, they didn't use it to my editor, they input fractions by hand. Now they don't anymore. So every two thirds of the cup became one third of the cup and we caught all of them except one. This is why I'm so glad that in social media that we can have a blog and have the errata section, which somebody told me you better call it corrections or people will think it's porn, you know, erotic, not errata. Uh -huh. <laughs> but any, any mistake in the book you can update. Now I'm losing my way. Oh yeah, so Bert, so he said, the very final stage, it costs a 50 cents a comma to correct anything, but you have to see it. So what happened was I was alone, working alone, So and it was a thousand page manuscript. So the first version, I dictated the entire thing into a tape recorder and played it back against the next version. I don't know if it's the proofs or the galleys, I forget which, because there were about four different versions. And when they came back in those days, and especially when they weren't expecting a book to sell, they uh, paid a typist minimum amount so that they would type by the page and they would type quickly. And with all those numbers, I thought, oh my God. So every time I found a mistake and there was at least three on every page, more sometimes, I would make a highlight in two colors and I would put a big black arrow. And the next version came back and sometimes they fixed them and some they didn't. And I complained to my husband, well, my late husband now, but he was a radiologist. So it was interesting because he said, well, what color did you use to highlight? And I said, red and green. And he said, those are the two colors that you can't see if you're colorblind, because radiology is the only area in medicine that you don't need to see color in order to work. It's better when you can, but because then you can different distinguish the shadows. But 
still you can you can function so i said yeah well what about the black arrow you know they could have seen that but they didn't know what it was pointing to i guess oh. but it was, that wasn't the issue i didn't find that out until five books later so when i finally got up to the blues i told maria that first of all i told her that i was proofreading vigilantly and she said you don't need to we have a proofreader well, it turns out the proofreader missed a lot. And she said, Rose, you have to do spell check after all because your spelling is atrocious. So here we are <laughs> in the very final stage and I'm still finding things wrong. And I said, listen, this cannot go to press until every single thing I found three generations back has been corrected. I don't mind if there's something new, but it's since I pointed it out right from the beginning and it still isn't done, I need you to have it corrected. And she did. And it was for history making. This is probably why the book continued to sell by word of mouth, because people were able to succeed from the recipe. And that's what I wanted. I wanted the exact exact amount of everything so it would be repeatable. And you could veer off it. You didn't have to be exactly right on, but at least it would be within the range of what would work. And this is what I'm always hearing from people who have said they've opened up baking shops and started their career. They trust my recipes and that means the world to me. So you can imagine if somebody's in the middle of a wedding cake and you have a mistake there, it's not like a lamb shop where it's overcooked, you can still eat it. It's disaster right. on a big scale, especially if you're making it for somebody else. I made over a hundred wedding cakes and I never had a disaster. Came close, but you know, it's, it's a big responsibility. I'm glad I don't do that anymore. Well, I remember the time when I was selling cookbooks that your book was one of the few ones that actually wasn't trying to just be charming and cute, but actually have some like gravitas and authority. And that was unusual at the time. I think now you see that more, but at the time it was just, I mean, a lot of the cookbooks were cutesy and they were, I mean, outside of maybe like, um, there were a few, I think, standardized cookbooks, but I think yours was like, this one was saying, you can actually read this and get some real education out of it which was rare, you know, at the time. It was rare that my editor allowed it. Yeah, I can imagine. Because I know I have a friend who wrote wonderful books. His head notes were fa fascinating and the editor wouldn't let them go, go into the book. So I was really lucky to have Marie Warner Shelley who took the leap. I can imagine because I mean, were they balking at publishing it at all? Like saying maybe it needs to be I don't know, more cutesy or something, because that was really the standard at the time. No, you know what it was? I wanted to have a four-color book. And when I went in and she said, uh, how much how many, how much money do you hope to make on this book? And I said, I'll do it for nothing if I can have a color picture of every cake. But I told Bert Green that he almost had a heart attack. He said, this is like the silver palette where that guy who did most of the book for them got a very, very small amount, not a royalty, and it, it sold millions of copies. He said, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And publishers usually take quite an advantage of authors, but Maria, it was almost like an animal offering the jugular, like here, kill me if you have to. You know? She just couldn't accept that, and she didn't. But she said, because she'd gone to Yale in graduate school, I think, and she was an intellectual snob in a good way. And she said, your book has a lot of information, and there are a lot of pages that would not have pictures on them so it would be a waste she basically didn't believe in four color books but i that's why eventually i left her because my dream was to have a four color book i think people not only now want to understand how things work to give them the freedom of maybe changing things but they also want to see a picture and that reminds me of something kind of funny 
when somebody says starts a question with can you about baking always 100% of the time not 99 but 100% they the next word is going to be substitute and that's the word that I hate the most and I use the word hate very often so once I invited Maria and her husband John to come to the Macy's Degustibus demo I was doing and somebody in the class got up and said can you substitute something for the banana and I said, in the banana cake? You know, I was thinking, why doesn't she just make another <laughs> cake? John Guarnichel like, pipes up with, yes, watermelon. He was as sarcastic a New Yorker as I was, but I just wasn't even thinking of a retort like that, you know? It's like, it's so the, the essence of a banana cake is banana. So you know, sometimes people just want to be heard. They don't really have a question. But usually questions get me started thinking about things. And sometimes there's an answer to it. Well, there's always an answer, but you know, sometimes it takes a while to think it through. Sometimes I forget. I mean, I've written now, this is my 13th book, and I sometimes forget what is in which book. And each of your books has a wonderful it's a, it's a site, and authors usually have to pay for it. But I used to write for Food Arts Magazine, and I wrote about each of your books. And as a gift, they categorized all my recipes. So if people want to see where they can find something, they don't actually get the recipe, but they find out which book it's in. And this, they've done this for a lot of authors. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. Now, tell us about your cream of tartar moment. Aside from weights, maybe even before weights, I would say that's my greatest contribution, in my opinion, to the baking world. You know how people have always written, and it's been true, that if you beat egg whites until stiff, but not dry, past the stiff and it becomes dry they break down the minute you fold them into a mixture and you lose all the air i've had so, that happen <laughs> <laughs> so i decided that i was going to experiment now some people use cream of tartar but like for six egg whites they would use a pinch or an eighth of a teaspoon it doesn't do much so i started adding and i experimented with egg whites to see what was the maximum that i could add and when i got to the maximum i started adding more and it went the other way but when I figured out that the maximum was an eighth of a teaspoon per egg white, you can beat for 20 minutes and it doesn't get stiff. I mean, it doesn't get dry, it gets stiff, but it never breaks down. And to me, that is so important. I wish I could afford to have a blimp, you know, those ones that go over the beaches and yeah. that people really like buy such and such. I would say, if you bake, do this, you know, because it really is so well, the only little rub now is if you don't weigh nowadays, and this is a big deal too, the proportion of yolk to white has changed in eggs. And it has taken me a long time to get to the bottom of it. But I was teaching a class, I think it was at King Arthur in Vermont, and someone who had, who raised chickens knew the answer. She said in industry, they're using younger laying hens. Now, of course, that would be cheaper, right? Because faster turnover and those hens make smaller eggs and although they, the weight would be correct the yolk itself is smaller than the white that's needed to nurture them so uh -huh. if you're using a one white doesn't mean anything or six whites means even less because you're going to be getting a lot too much egg white and you're not going to be stabilizing them quite as well but even more important the yolk people say well why do you say six to ten yolks like in the ice cream bliss book and it's not that I'm not sure which it should be. I'm, what I am sure about is that one egg yolk is not going to be what it used to be. If you use duck egg yolks, they're even larger than hen egg yolks. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's never been true that an egg, which is supposed to be two ounces, that's 56 grams, that uh, it 
never has been that each egg is going to be weighing the same amount because the United the USDA requires that a dozen eggs weigh up to 12 times two ounces, 12, 24 ounces, right? But not each individual egg has to be two ounces. It can be one can be one ounce, another could be three ounces. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but the point is that in baking, even in like a genoise, that's where I really discovered the thing about the egg yolks. People writing to me saying that their genoise was coarse, just a few people. And I thought, oh, they're probably doing something wrong. And then it happened to me making a wedding cake. And I called my dearest friend, Lucy Opelson, who is a cookbook writer in Washington, DC. And she said, yes, I now add an extra yolk to my genoise. And I said, do you think it could also be the uh, cornstarch that's classically used in, in genoise? And she said it could very well be. So I use cornstarch from Rumford that is not genetically modified. And I tried using another one. And between the using an insufficient amount of yolk and also using a non-genetic, genetically modified cornstarch, you did not get that velvety, wonderful texture. I mean, it was such an eye-opener. That now, I mean, my editors did not want me to put in the book, which I'm always doing revisions to things, and on the blog, she didn't want me to get into the GMO thing because it's political. I'm only political when it comes to eggs, you know. It's like I stay away from it. Otherwise, if people are not going to succeed, I'm going to get political if I have to. So I was allowed to put in that they're not. Um, what's the word that people use when you go to a health food store? Well, I forget what the word is because it, to me it means nothing. Like you can get flour that's um, things that are grown that are supposed to be better for you, but not necessarily better, just that they're grown in a way that is viable. Oh, I forget all this terminology because I said I, I'm not into it. But the point is she let me put that in and then I found out that it's not true of Rumford. The only true thing that's true is the thing that matters and that it's not genetically modified. <laughs> so uh, that was, the break, you know, the big breakthrough. So instead, I think I mentioned that she said it was fine for me in my nine inch by two inch and was to say add an extra yolk. And that's the only sponge cake where you're not separating the eggs and the whites. So you don't even know that you're not getting enough yolks. And that was the easy answer. But for wedding cakes, you really now need to do that. You need to separate the yolks and the whites for the genoise because otherwise you have, I mean, you can say add a yolk for every well, I break it down with formulas. So every formula for nine by two for a wedding cake, if you have to multiply it by four, that means you need four extra egg yolks. Better than nothing, but better still is having a weight. Tell us about the importance of flour and baking. Oh, that's another big issue because yeah. in the book, and I just changed this in the Cake Bible, and I'm so lucky that my wonderful editor, Cassie Jones, allowed me to make that change throughout the entire book. It might, the Cake flour that I use, I just say cake flour because there were only two in this country, swan's down, soft as silk. But now people are coming up with flour that is unbleached. And I don't know what it is. I think they put in wheat starch to, instead of whatever, instead of the corn starch that was supposed to be better. I tried it and it still doesn't work. So she allowed me to put the word bleached in parentheses. There was room in the charts for every single recipe, and there are a lot of them. That's how important it was to me, and she understood. Because what happens, it's it's not true if you make a sponge cake, for example, as Jen was, but in a butter cake, if you use unbleached flour in the basic layer cake, what will happen is it will rise just fine, and right when, before it's about to come out of the oven, the center falls. Oh. And then it also has a coarse texture. 
Because what happens, it was Shirley Courier who wrote Cook Was, Bake Was. She's a research biochemist, and she was the one who told me that in bleaching, well, bleached flour, unbleached flour, the flour particles are like ball bearings, they're smooth. And so they can't emulsify, they can't evenly mix ingredients so that the butter and the milk or whatever liquid will fall through it. And although it looks like it's a batter, it's actually not gonna be a fine texture. And it can't support the structure as well. That's why it falls in the middle. So by bleaching, it roughens up the particles. And that was when I went to Devon, England because somebody on my blog wrote to me that she was experimenting with heat treating because she found that her cakes were only, when she was making my cake, instead of one and three quarter inches, it was like half inch. And she said when she makes other cakes, I mean, not makes them, but when she buys them, they have a really nice texture. So she knew something was wrong. And she, in researching, discovered that in industry in England, they do something called heat treating that affects the same thing as bleaching. It roughens the particles. Because in the UK, it's not legal to have bleached flour. They consider it bad. And oh, I didn't know that. So I gave her a chapter, a small but very important chapter in, in Heavenly Cakes in that book, because what she did was to heat treat in the microwave and she perfected it. And I went to Devon, England, and I worked with her trying out, I bought cake flour illegally, <laughs> and we tried <laughs> that. I mean, it was identical texture. The flavor was a little better with the cake flour from this country because chlorine bleaching results in a kind of floral quality. It's barely detectable, but totally acceptable to heat treatments makes a huge difference not just in the uk but in singapore and australia and all the uk and all the commonwealth countries so this was a really major discovery but some years back i was making somebody a birthday cake and i also was making bread and the family birthday cake i made always was from the cake bible it was the grand marnier gato or grand marnier mm. and it's made in a bun pan i noticed it was baking faster and I thought, what would that be? And all of a sudden I realized that I had been making bread using unbleached bread flour, unbleached purpose in that case. And by mistake, I must have used the unbleached flour because this bleaching kills some of the protein. So the slightly higher protein is enough to make it brown faster. That's what protein will do, protein and fat. And I thought, well, now it's gonna fall in the center. And then I realized, wait a minute, it doesn't have a center. So it's a, it's a tube pen. So since I never got to taste the cake, I don't know how if it was perfect in the internal texture, but at least it didn't fall. It was a good sign. It had the support of the center too. So if somebody is really determined to make a cake that's with unbleached flour, that's the way to do it in a tube pen. But at least specify. I mean, I don't see other recipes where people are saying all-purpose flour bleached or unbleached, I mean, which is it? You know, not to say nothing, but it's even worse to say flour and not even say if it's all-purpose or what. You, know, you can't assume these things. That's why recipes don't work. And in the past, when some of the editors criticized me for being so exacting, I hated to say, and I'm not going to say who it is, but people have written to me giving me somebody else's recipe and saying it didn't work, what is wrong with it? It's because they weren't giving the details. So. I knew whose it was because when I was doing the cake bible, I wanted to choose a style for the appearance of the pages. And when I looked at other people's books online, I would I would notice what little what they call dingbats, you know, the little design. Oh yeah, yeah. So 
that's why I couldn't have the sleuth and me was able to discover what it was. But I thought it was kind of ironic that I felt like saying, why don't you ask so-and-so? It's her recipe. Um, they're giving it away. It's a woman. Okay. <laughs> I think it's one thing that's changed over the years is I remember when I was young, you just had flour. That was it. <laughs> and now people have like ice. I myself have like, we'll have several different types of flowers at home, flour at home. And most people I think now are, are like that. You'll have like, you know, whole wheat, bleached, unbleached cake flour. Um, maybe even like flour for baking, you know, pizza dough. You'll have maybe, you know, different types of other flours like rye, uh, teff, um, spelt, you know, I mean, it's, I think that's the, a huge difference from, you know, 30 years ago when it was just flour. <laughs> well, you know, told me that in Germany, there was only one flour, so you learned to work with it. For example, if it was a high protein flour and, it, and you were doing something more delicate, you just didn't manipulate it as much. You didn't need it as much. I thought, wow, you can do such miracles and you just work with one flour. But you know, when I brought in to, to do my starter, starters work best to create if you have rye flour and flour that's not been tampered with in any way. So uh, I still can't remember that word for it. <laughs> but the thing is that every single flower, and normally cake flour can never get weevils, you know, those little tiny bugs. Yeah. Because it was rye flour, it was um, it spread to every single one of the other flowers that I had. I had drawers of flowers in my unit. I had to throw them all out. So then I learned that when you bring the flower like that into the house, you need to freeze it for right. two days, right? And it will kill any of the weevils and stuff like that. Um. I want to ask you about your upcoming cookie Bible. I feel very blessed to have had a chance to look at, look at it and actually cook something from it. So I want to ask you, um, how did you get inspired to write your cookie Bible? Did you, did you tell me which you actually tried? Oh, of course I know. Cause you asked permission. That was so yeah. sweet. Okay. And, well, we don't have to tell if you don't want to. But... No, it was, the, it was the jammy plum bars. Right. And that's Aaron Jean McDowell who did the styling for the book. Isn't it gorgeous, though? Oh, yes. Very beautiful uh, photography. It's mm. very well done. Yeah, all throughout, it's just a gorgeous book. I couldn't be more pleased. You know, I used to love my books more online because you had the backlight of the computer screen. But this one, I don't know what they do. The production is even more beautiful than on a computer screen. It's like it loops off the page. So what inspired me was that I did write a book after the Cake Bible, which I considered my vacation book from the Cake Bible, which was so demanding. The Christmas cookie book, Rose's Christmas Cookies. And I love cookies, everyone loves cookies, and it was so fun, but it's been so many years. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be really wonderful to have a new cookie book? And somebody had asked me what I do with Cookie Bible, and I said, that even sounds silly. Well, I was the first one to have a Bible book, so to speak, a cookbook. And since then, there's the Bagel Bible. There's just everything imaginable. So one morning, I woke up and I thought, that's it, time for the Cookie Bible. And I have to say that one of the books, the only one of the 13 books that was not my book that became my book because I had to revise and translate to such an extent is La Passion du Chocolat, The Passion for Chocolate, the Bernachon book from Lyon. And I was just reading Bill Buford's book, Dirt. And he wrote about a lot of the people there that I had also met when I was working with them. Like, uh, oh, he just died recently, the most famous chef. And his name has just disappeared from me. I'll, I'll think of it. But point is, that was the father-in-law of Jean-Jacques Jean Bernichon. So we ate at his restaurant and it just was really amazing. 
But translating the cookies, they had never actually written it for home bakers. They but they said, well, in France, people buy it from us and they like to have this coffee book. So at some point I gave up trying to make it my recipe and I just did it the way they had done. And there were four recipes. One was my top favorite that I think it was the, one of the beer roots that was really wonderful, but the macaron de vernichon. And it's not like a macaron that is the Parisian type. It's thin, it's rough, and it's, I think it's spread with chocolate. Anyways, absolutely exquisite. So I revised every one of those four favorite recipes and I put it in a new book. And I revisited almost everything except for the Notre Dame Cathedral. When Notre Dame was burning, I posted that the picture of that cookie cathedral. The, the What inspired me to do it initially was that I always thought with the stained glass cookies that, that would make a beautiful rose window for a cathedral. And Marie Cornichelli insisted that I have a cookie house in the cookie book. And I thought, okay, now it's time to do the cathedral with flying buttresses. Oh, what a challenge that was. And it, it came out so well. We lit it from inside with a bulb that it was actually in the window of uh, the Scribner's building on Fifth Avenue. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And well, I decided Marie's not here anymore, sadly, and she's not my editor anymore, so, and nobody's telling me I have to have a cookie house in this book. So there is not a cookie house in the book, but I do give the gingerbread recipe for how to make a cookie book, a, a cathedral, because you have to do a different type of gingerbread, one that's more sturdy and a little less delicious to eat. How did you narrow down uh, the selection of cookies? Because it must have been hard, because um, you have a wonderful selection of cookies in the book, but... Um... How did you decide which ones you're going to pick? Before I answer that, of course, the name just popped into my head. Paul Bocuse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was the one, the amazing guy. Anyway, how, how did I narrow it down? I just want, I narrowed it down to what my favorite cookies are. I think they're about 150 in the book. But what happened was that it was so hard to narrow it down completely. And I have savory cookies in there, too. That in the end it got too big to publish which seems to happen to a lot of us writers who love writing <laughs> so they're going to be offered as a special promo for people who pre-order i mm. think there's six recipes and they're going to be the savory cookies and then there's one cookie that we're going to offer coming up soon for people who not they didn't have to pre-order or do anything just that i know it's disappointing not to be able to have the book in time for thanksgiving and it, publishing date got pushed up to November 23rd from November 16th. So that makes it too late for Thanksgiving. And we decided to put the recipe that our family recipe loves the most and our family loves the most every Thanksgiving. And that's the cranberry lemon bars. Oh yeah. That recipe. And actually it's one of my second cousins who always made it and it's it isn't her recipe originally, so what I did is I adapted it to have my favorite shortbread crust, my favorite lemon curd, and then the addition of the cranberry in the middle of it. I now I don't even ever want to make it again without the cranberries because it's such a harmonious combination. And we actually, we've already posted on the blog the recipe of the lemon curd, and the reason is I didn't want the next posting to get too long with the three components, so we're going to link to that. So wonderful with instagram that you can tell people go to my bio and you see this and you see that but some of the ladies in england who have baked through the book in the past and one in minnesota marie wolf they decided to form a little group subgroup called the lazy bakers and they asked if i would send three recipes from the book 
test. One of them was Mrs. Mrs. Swallow's lemon 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 cookies. The reason I'm hesitating over it is because this is so funny with punctuation. I knew her name was Swallow. So in the index it says Swallow apostrophe s, but somewhere along the line, some copy editor put in Swallow's apostrophe s s apostrophe s, which is correct if the original name were Swallows, but is not correct by her name. But it really, she's not alive anymore, and I'm sure if she were, she'd be so happy to have her recipe in the book, and it's sandwiched with lemon curd. So they were a little bit, they were a little bit reluctant to think about making their own because of the fact that in England you have such wonderful lemon curd. In fact, Tip Tree, they actually get the lemons, I think, from Morocco, so it's the best quality. But they tried four lemon curds, the commercial ones. We can only get the Tip Tree here that they tried. And each and every one paled compared to homemade lemon curd. And I believe in making lemon curd with 100% egg yolk. It gives such an incredible flavor. So I'm so glad they validated that because the one thing I don't believe in is giving any kind of recipe, especially complex one, that isn't worth every single step. I mean, I just did my Concord grape pie. It took close to 10 hours because even though just Woody and I are eating it, I still wanted to give a beautiful grape leaf motif decoration, you know, and stuff like that. And I thought, do I, do I think this is worth it? Yes, and I, in fact, I had extra grapes, enough to make maybe a little tiny pie, but instead what I did is I just made the, the, the jelly. And that's a little bit less difficult because, I mean, I don't know, you can see my hands, but they look like cadavers because they're so stained from the Concord grapes. <laughs> Still, after 24 hours, black under my nails. I mean, I suppose I should have used gloves, but I'm one of these really hands-on people. A lot of people can't touch hardly anything without getting really irritated like soap detergent and stuff. That's not one of my problems. I have other ones, but that's not one. But when you put your hands and for an hour into separating skins from the pulp, that begins to sting. And I remembered that, but I didn't pay attention to it. So I just revised the recipe for myself. And on top of it, I wrote, use gloves in big bold letters. Hopefully I'll, I'll remember that next time. Anyway, the, the, the jelly, the Concord grape jelly, I just made enough for half a cup, but it'll be lovely on top of yogurt and my mouth is watering just thinking about it. And it's local here. I know it's local to where you are too. Oh and yeah. I never knew that get it except for up down the road here. The smell too is so wonderful to smell any when you're mm -hmm. cooking Concord grapes, the perfume that permeates the house is just delightful. Yeah, I was really surprised because we're right now doing a renovation. And I told the contractor that I had a pizza pie for him and he said, not today. And I said to Woody afterwards, well. He doesn't realize, I mean, I've been making it again for years. And he said, did you tell him? And I said, no, I think he was being polite. He, maybe he's on a diet. I don't know what. <laughs> you know? I mean, everybody I've ever had working for me either is diabetic or for some reason or other was avoiding baked goods. So, oh, yeah. It's like that in the Bay Area, people are, you know, usually have a lot of food bugaboos. So you have to be careful. You know, I, I, I'm, I always kind of tentatively reach out and see if they can eat sugar or gluten or whatever before I offer something to them. I want to talk to you about another book that you had come out recently, um, the Roses Ice Cream Bliss book. Um, I was really eager to talk to you about this because I like making ice cream myself. How did you come to write this book? Because this is a little bit of a departure, isn't it, from your baking books? 
it's the only book that isn't about heat it's about cold and freezing right yeah and it's a baking book you're right ice cream is different and it was not greeted with an, an enormous amount of enthusiasm by the publisher because that's not what i'm known for and the reason is i have to say that probably what people know me best for is cake uh, the pastry bible is one of the most difficult books to write the bread bible is my favorite thing to do i love making bread but my favorite thing to eat in the sweet realm, at least it's in the sweet realm, well, bread isn't, but ice cream is ice cream. And I wanted to make it without being, having to add emulsifiers and additives that give it an unpleasant flavor or getting a Paco Jet, which is over $1,000 and needs to be reconditioned every year for another several hundred dollars. I mean, then you don't need anything because it breaks up all the ice crystals. I figured there'd be a way to make it so that even if it was richer and higher in egg yolk and cream proportion to milk, that it would be, you'd prefer having a smaller portion of something absolutely perfection that's creamy and flavorful. And so that's why I did it. And unfortunately it came out exactly at the beginning of the pandemic so that we had to cancel all our book tours and promotions and a lot of people now say oh you have an ice cream book you know when they write it on the blog but they don't know it but the nice thing is that ice cream and cookies go together so now when we do our various podcasts and we're not doing anything that's in, in person this now but we we may we're planning to reschedule our book tour to the east bay and to california because i have family there and because I have so many friends and colleagues. And then we'll be able to maybe do the two together. That's a good idea. I think that'd be really welcome here. I mean, people are reviewing it. They're getting great reviews The people who get it and people who read it. And it's a really beautiful book. We just love doing it. I think we did all the photographs here. Do you have any favorite no. recipes from it? Uh, yes. Let's see, the first the thing that comes to mind is the passion. And you know, the perfect puree of Napa near where you are has the, the passion fruit is one of the things that it's best to make from a puree that somebody else commercially has perfected because unless you can get right passion fruit, say you're in Australia, it, it's not gonna be the same, but I use the perfect puree of Napa and several other of their products that really make a huge difference. And that, and I've had so many favorites, it's hard to know where to begin, but, um, of course, the vanilla one, and everyone loves vanilla. With my chocolate one, um, that's really, I mean, I can't even think of what I don't really love. It just doesn't jump out as to if I just had one left, probably I'll think of it after we say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, it's hard. I we always like, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? And I just, I have a hard time with that because I mean, it depends on the day, you know, or the mood, you know? Well, if it's mine, I know what I usually like to make. And in fact, I, maybe I should say that my favorite one is the black raspberry because we actually planted, we excavated black raspberries from down the road so that we had plenty of them because you can buy it, but it's not quite as wonderful as when you have your own black raspberries and they're really hardy. And it's a lot of work because you have to separate the pits and it's worth every second of it. So we always have at least three packages of pureed raspberry. And I was telling my editor because she and her husband made it and just loved it. And I said, well, you know what could be really easy to do is to make the puree ahead, put it in the freezer, and then you don't have to have a water bath to chill it down because you put the frozen puree right in the custard and it immediately cools it. 
And then see the thing with ice cream, the best ice cream texture is allowing it to sit overnight, at least eight hours, 24 is even better, and then get a better texture. So it's really good to be able to cool it down fast, get it in the freezer, in the refrigerator, and then freeze it when it's frozen for a long period of time. Yeah, it's really hard to do when you have kids because they, they always want to eat it immediately. And you're like, no, tomorrow it'll be better. And you're like, no, yeah, I want it now. Yeah, but wait, <laughs> if it hasn't been frozen yet, what is an ice cream? Are they going to drink it? Yeah, they don't get it. They're like, you know, they're like, how come? And you have to explain every single time. No, it's not right ready yet. It'll be ready tomorrow, you know. They never do understand. Um, you seem very aware of the cookbook market and you're very knowledgeable about other authors from my talking to you. Who are some of your food writing heroes and people that you like to read? You know, I have to, I actually had to make a list because there are so many that I really love. Uh, I started off with MFK Fisher, of course, because I loved her writing. I loved the way she wrote about food mm. um, and her passion for it. And of course, Julia Child. I think she was my inspiration more than anyone else for writing a recipe. All those years ago, she gave all the information that you needed. She gave weights and she was a perfectionist. Made a heater, although she didn't give weights. I love the way she described recipes and Often, unfortunately, I think her description was even better than the recipe. That's how what a good writer she is. That was the danger, I think. Paula Wolford. I know she just moved from the West Coast. She used to be on the East Coast when I first met her. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer and makes no compromises and really investigates things that other people might not have done. Um, yeah, I wrote about her uncompromising integrity. Alice Medrich. Uh, she was one of my early on uh, mentors, I should say, or people that I really looked up to. She had Coco Lot in Berkeley when I first started visiting my cousin who lives in Berkeley. And I just was blown away, not just by the beauty of her work, but the textures, the flavors. And I know she studied in France, but I found, although I studied at Lenotre, that the French baking was too sweet to my taste, but not at Alice's. I mean, the Alice, Alice's work is her own. Her books are amazing. I love her. Uh, Jenk Somazoy, Jenk from Turkey, the artful baker. He studied in San Francisco. And I got to know him when he came to New York with his book. And I just adore his books. I think they're the most beautiful of any cookbooks I've ever seen. And he does everything himself, the, the styling, the photography. He's a major perfectionist. Helen Goh in England, she works with um, Yotam Otolenghi, who's what work I also love. And Helen has become such a close friend. We shared so many intimate things that we've never actually met in person. So I'm looking forward to the day that we can go to England or she comes here and we can see her. Uh, Lisa Yokelson, she's one of my very closest friends. She's written many books. In fact, she was the one who introduced me to my editor when I met Maria, because she met me when I left Maria, because she knew that I wanted to have a book that was as beautiful as her books, you know, four color book. And so she introduced me to Pam Charles and that was the uh, Heavenly Cakes, right? I'm looking at my shelf of books. I remember I was showing one of my favorite people, Randy Johnson, who I met on a press trip to Switzerland and he was uh, the editor in chief of Pace Communications. And when he came to visit, he said, 
you have a foot of books. Now I'm looking at my books because there's a lot more than a foot of books. And he said, I said, yes, quite a feat. That <laughs> um, I guess I just wanted to cover every topic that interested me and I had the ability to do it. And I never had any help until Woody came along. Woody Wollston, whom I met in, when I was working with General Mills, I was doing a video. Oh, it was actually promote one of my books. And and uh, the morning that I was leaving, he happened to write to me and say, do you ever come to Minnesota? And I said, as a matter of fact, I'm coming today. <laughs> so he met me and he brought two of the cakes that he'd made for my books. And I was just blown away. I mean, he has really large hands. And I thought, how could he do such delicate work? Just exquisite. So he asked me if he could ever work with me. And I said, well, I've had bad experience in the past when I gave somebody a recipe and they said they eyeballed it with their eyes rolling as they said it. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so I said, well, why don't you start by making this one cake? And because we were able with technology for him to do a video and show me exactly what he'd done or the final results. And I said, okay, then come and work with me for a week and let's see what happens. And the rest is history. And then he actually moved here about eight years ago. And when we moved from New York and if he hadn't been here during COVID and the isolation and my husband of almost 46 years getting very sick and dying, I could not have lived here on my own. So he's been working with me on my books, I think starting with Heavenly Cakes. And then he was actually here. I mean, he came on vacation to do Heavenly Cakes, but he wasn't there for photography. And then for the Baking Bible, I'm looking to see because I'm losing sense of the sequence. He was there working with me the whole time. So it made a huge difference because especially now with proofreading, with the Cake Bible, I read, I mean, Bert Green had told me that he and Philip read back to back and forth, that you have to do that or you don't catch errors. And so I read the entire book into a tape recorder and played it back against the galleys. And that's how I found every single error that had been introduced. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, that was that was part of the success because if say if something instead of for a cake, small cake had 24 eggs people would know it was a mistake but some things are more subtle and we ruin the recipe so i did that with every single book that i did until woody came along and then i had a second pair of eyes where we could read back and forth and proof and stuff and i don't think i could have written in depth so many books you know 13 books without having woody come aboard and somebody i totally trusted you look like you have quite a sizable uh, book collection. How many cookbooks do you think you have? A lot. <laughs> I have no idea. Well over a thousand, I know that. And I think up, up here I have all the baking books up in my office, but two flights down in the baking kitchen. Um, also, even one flight down, I've got them stacked up, where things I need to get to. I was lucky because we have a basement that was an unfinished basement and when we moved here full time when my husband left NYU radiology, uh, I actually created a baking kitchen in our basement that wasn't being used. So it's really amazing to be able to segregate all the things related to baking, not worrying about the odor of garlic getting onto my spatulas, you know, which right. part to get out. I made an interesting discovery the other day. I got a little hand grinder for peppercorns or spices or anything it's cast iron and i was going to use it for, well i did use it for cumin and then i thought did i make a big mistake because now i can't use it for something that i wouldn't want the smell of cumin 
And to my amazement, it disappeared, especially when I ground little salt. And I discovered that cast iron doesn't retain odors, but all that wonderful new technology of frying pans and saucepans that have nonstick coating, when you use it for something that is not meant to be used for baking, you can't get rid of the odor. Oh, wow. And Woody did it by mistake in one of my favorite pans, and I called the company and they said, try. Oh, what did they tell me to use? I think it was to boil vinegar in it, something that would unlock that. And it actually worked. And I wrote it somewhere as this happens again. But Woody's perfect, except for things like that. You know, he doesn't know every one of my tricks yet, even after all these years. We actually got married uh, a year ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Not a year ago, this past June. What am I saying? Thank you. Thank you. It was it was a year and a half since my husband died. And in the end, he was here taking care of him. And it was just a great blessing that he had moved from Minnesota to Hope, New Jersey. But you see, I'm in a totally isolated like wilderness. And there are a lot of things that would need to be done that you couldn't even hire somebody during COVID. So right. that's why I'm saying if not for Woody, I wouldn't have survived being here. I don't know what I would have done. You've um, touched many people's lives over the years with your books. Um, I, I know just working in a cookbook store, I've had people come in almost crying, thanking me for recommending your books for you know, celebrations and being able to use them for weddings and, and making, you know, or learning, or just getting into the industry and learning how to become a cake uh, baking professional or, or you know, a professional cake maker. Um, have you, you know, ever thought about all the lives you've touched with your books? I think that's what means the most to me. And there are two people who stand out, one that happened many years ago and the other really recently, who's a very well-known author as well. But I'll tell you the older one first. He shared a common name with me, Mark Levy. I met him at the Morristown Festival of Books. And he said that he originally had worked as a bookseller in Dalton, B. Dalton. And when he saw the newly published Cake Bible, he noticed it was being overlooked by the powers that purchase, I'm quoting. So he suggested that the book would be a major seller. They ordered 35 copies saying that if they didn't sell, his neck was on the block. And okay, they used a different word, but I didn't want to repeat it. Yeah. And, <laughs> You know what else they usually see yeah. on the blog. The rest, he said, the rest is history. He said the book changed his life and gave him the courage and confidence to apply for major positions in places, including the United Nations. You know, to, to have touched other people's lives, what more can you ask in life? You know, and I always wanted to have children of my own, um, a whole bunch of them, in fact, after reading the two by the dozen. In fact, we actually in California, in uh, Northern California or north of San Francisco, we were invited by the uh, Baker's as an East, I think it was by a group who were baking through one. We actually came twice baking through the books. And the woman who owned the place was one of the original Cheaper by the, cheaper by the Dozen, I think it was. Um, well, at any rate, it was really amazing to see, you know, to have touched lives like this and to see how people were influenced by my work. But most recently, and most meaningfully, David Leet of Leet's Culinaria. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he's an amazing person. We've known each other we, for many years, but not well. He, we met in Michigan at the KitchenAid special event where we were doing each demoing something. And, um, and we really hit it off and we stayed friends, but we just didn't get together. I think once I was on his radio show 
And very recently, this is the, the fan letter that really touched my heart the most because he was um, writing about how he had been, it was, he was diagnosed as being bipolar and what he went through in his life uh, and how he, his survival was when he was at work and he was in a really bad way, he would go to the bookstore and break and read through the cake Bible. And which I'm trying to remember which of the cakes in particular that he made that, um, that changed his life. But here I've known him all these years and didn't realize this about him and didn't realize how my work affected him. And nothing could mean more than finding out this from a friend these days people are more open and say more about who they really are and you can trust more of all that they say because of that you know and he's really one of my favorite friends and the cake that he made was the white velvet and in fact he added a little bit of oil to it to make it stay softer which I'm now doing and have been doing also to other ones so we're just so much on the same page about things and so recently he did a posting and I also did a posting on him. And it just, there's nothing that means more than finding out that you've meant so much to somebody, somebody you know that you didn't even know that had any kind of problems. I mean, I, I, he was a radio host where I was on his show and I thought, wow, this guy has so much confidence. You don't know what's inside of a person that, unless they share it. And then you can value all the more who they are and what they do. I, I want to ask. It's too bad this is just audio. <laughs> I I want to ask you. Um, I, this is probably a, a irreverent question, but um, <laughs> what kind of music do you listen to when you bake? Oh, I'm glad that you asked because I went to the high school of music and art, and although I tried to transfer into art after my first year because I had discovered that all the other students had professional musicians as parents. Now, my mother was a pianist. She could have been professional, but I never studied theory. I never studied all the things that you need to know. And one of the things that they asked us to do was to listen to a piece in four-part harmony and cut, transcribe it. To oh, me, it wow. Unbelievable. I thought, I can't do this. And you don't graduate from music and art, even if you have a full, and you do have to have a full academic curriculum, uh, unless you pass the music part. So it was just the challenge of my life. But they said when I did my art test that I could get in for art, but only if I repeated my first year because I didn't have, know enough about art. I just I had the talent, but not the knowledge. And I thought in those days, oh, I don't want to graduate late. You know, <laughs> Meantime, I got my college degrees in my late twenties and early thirties by going back to school. So music, my mother was a musician, as I just said, and I had a lot of people in my family who were musicians. And so, I'm a classical music lover. And when I bake, I used to listen to music all the time. But now that my, uh, that Woody is here and there's somebody to talk to most of the time, except when he's out gardening now. And then I turn on WQXR. I basically have stopped listening to music a lot. Every Saturday I listen to the opera if it's one that I like. Oh, and nice. I, in fact, I wrote the, the introduction to the Kitchen Classics, the Philharmonic Cookbook. Ooh. June LaBelle, who was the host for many years at WQXR, was in my official class and we were very good friends. She died a few years ago, but, um, but what was I saying about 
about classical music. Well, anyway, that that was my main main thing that I listened to. I'm getting all this now, all this uh, suddenly. <laughs> suddenly, I should have turned it off. This doesn't interfere too much. No, you're fine. It's fine. Okay. Um, I was saying about June and all. Oh, and our fiftieth reunion was really amazing. And when I made a cake dedicated to Renee Fleming. Oh wow! Engineered for us to actually be able to come to the Met and bring the cake backstage, and that was just an amazing moment. Oh my God, that must have been incredible. Yeah, it really was. So uh, there are three cakes that are dedicated to musicians in my books. One is <laughs> this is interesting. One was Placido Domingo, and Mm, this is I have I've written in oh it's in my head but yeah Pavarotti was the first one I wanted to write the chocolate Pavarotti is my best chocolate cake but he was on a diet at the time oh he no said, he said he doesn't want to be associated with food at all this is a really funny story so I dedicated <laughs> to Domingo whom I also loved and that's how the chocolate Domingo came to be but here's the funny part when the New York Times article came out that I mentioned that Corby Kummer did, it was the entire front page of the New York Times plus seven eighths of the uh, second page. And the one eighth below was Placido Domingo raising a toast saying, oh no, Pavarotti, raising a toast, would look like to me in my cake, saying Pavarotti breaks diet at last. And I thought, oh, somebody either has a sense of humor or they just missed it. It's just too funny. So after Pavarotti died, I, I investigated if it was okay to dedicate to somebody who's no longer alive. And it was a little bit questionable because if somebody's that famous, there are different rules, but I went ahead and did it anyway. So I have a Chilka Domingo, a Chilka Pavarotti. Um, and Oh, I forgot to tell you a couple of really important things. And the, the Renee Fleming, the Golden Fleming. Okay. Oh, nice. So what I, what I forgot to tell you about um, Bay Area people. Oh, we, we didn't get to it yet about some of the people that are, are my colleagues that I'm really fond of. That's what I was going to ask you next, actually. Yeah, um, okay. Okay, yeah. okay. I didn't want to miss out on that. Yeah. What are, when you I, come... I wanted to move to the Bay Area because my brother owns Cutfoot Express. My cousin is a therapist. Uh, John Wager and I, you know, I just have so many friends and my colleagues. I have more colleagues there than I do even on the East Coast. I'm sorry, East Coast people. I mean, I have colleagues around the world that I love, but the Bay Area has my heart. And so, you were going to ask me about the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, so, when you come to the Bay Area and visit, do you have bakeries or bakers that you visit when you come here? Do I have? bakeries I visit. It's more people I visit than bakeries now. I mean, a lot of things have closed. Like uh, Alice Medrich, I adore her. I adore her bakery. But the people that I loved, that some are no longer here, but they've had a big influence on me. And we had a really close connection. Flo Breaker, Marion Cunningham. Oh, yeah. Marlene Swarovski, thank God, is still alive. Um, Baker's Dozen. I'm really close to a lot of people there in Alice. And Michael Rusciutti. He just sent me some wonderful chocolates of his along with, it. I think it was the fourth printing of the Cake Bible that he asked me to sign, which I did with enormous pleasure, especially having received all those chocolates along with it. And there's a package en route to him now with all sorts of surprises that he's kind of loved too, and books. Um, Annie Baker. Do you know, do you know who she is? Unfortunately, no. No, I'll, I'll look that up. 
she yeah check her check into her because she, there's a cookie dedicated to her book and lemon, lemon lumpies we call them she has really amazing cookies um emily watson we met her at a book signing actually um the book signing was in oakland i think well, my mind's getting mushy, but talking so much. <laughs> anyway, Emily from Boychick Bagels. We just adore Ah, her. yeah. And then I didn't know that she comes from New Jersey and her family is here. So I allowed her to come even when we were really quarantined during COVID. I mean, she had had her COVID injections. Plus, um, she also had been with her family several days before. But, you know, still we're being super careful now. But I just so loved her. And she came. It was it happens to be on my birthday. And she brought a huge supply of bagels. And I just adore her. Mandy Aftel of Aftelier. Do you know her? No, unfortunately. Well, she works with Daniel. Daniel. Oh, my God. His, my mind is really getting too much. It's never been good with names. But he's one of my best friends. I made his wedding cake. He was he a qua restaurant. Daniel oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, Mandy is a perfumer who also does incredible essences, which I write about Ooh. in my books. In the ice cream book, she has a lot of different contributions there. Uh, Amy Guitar from Guitar Chocolate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Deborah Kwan, do you know her? No, unfortunately, I don't. She's a publicist, and I've known her for many, many years. Um, and my oldest, dearest friend in the Bay Area is Diane Boat. And you probably don't know her, but she's the one who is very instrumental in the AIDS Grove. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, she lost both of her sons. And she is the most giving person. She's contributed in a very major way to the community in San Francisco. And just uh, we've shared so much together. And she's always done special parties. And when we came for our last book, she, as a surprise, had one of our great friends from Hawaii, Hector Wang, who had baked through every single recipe in the cake Bible on the pictures, she had him come as a surprise. So it's just my connection to the Bay Area and to my family there and to my friends is just very intense. And having to cancel our tour that we we're supposed to have and we we're paying for on our own dime because the publisher no longer is sending people on book tour now that they've discovered this kind of other media. Yeah. But we're going to be scheduled hopefully for April. Oh, I'd love to see you and Woody if you guys come here. That'd be really nice to have dinner with you or lunch or something. We would love that. There's so many great places to go to. God, where to go? That's the other thing. I mean, <laughs> although so many places are closed, unfortunately, too. So that's the other side of that. Um, I know what, you wanted to know. You may have forgotten because we're going out of order since I'm one of these ad libbers that keep jumping around. That's okay. That's totally I good. I know you wanted to ask about what I'm doing when I'm not writing cookbooks. Yes, I'm very interested in that. Not much. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything I do is related to it, right? So, and I'm, of course, always baking, and I love to cook. And I wanted to write a savory cookbook. In fact, I think I did. Yep, I did. I wrote two books, the only two books of mine that went out of print. Rose's Celebrations and Rose's Melting Pot. You can still get them probably for 50 cents on Amazon, but... I do love cooking. I think that bakers can make great cooks. Most great cooks do not make great bakers because it's a whole different mentality. Yeah, it's very true. And of course, I don't, I mean, bakers have to follow rules, but I follow my own rules. I've never been a rule follower of other people's, incidentally. I mean, interestingly, you know, it's like rules are for other people because I research my rules. I try every single thing to the point of failure. 
So when I'm not doing either baking or cooking, I'm also writing my memoirs. I have such wonderful stories. And uh, I also love knitting, but I have to admit, I have not knitted in about a year and a half. Um, I love gardening and that's part of baking, of course, and cooking. Yeah. We have, we have really good tomatoes. And it's really interesting that I discovered oven roasting tomatoes. I've been to Australia twice. And luckily I was part of the, I forget what they call their book, special book celebrations where they have people come from different countries, like about 10 people. That's where I met Anthony Bourdain. And oh my it God. Amazing, it was an amazing experience doing this. And so um, we were just talking about, um, oh, other things that I do that I love telling stories and I love writing. And that's where I started. Um, I think I've always had the blog, but that's where I started expanding what I was writing about and writing about other people and memoirs. And um, let's see, I've, I've just started Tai Chi because oh, nice. I'm a master of Tai Chi. Yeah, and of course we walk every day. I used to swim every day in New York City, a mile every day, but here it would be much more difficult. Just getting to the place would take a half hour. So I kind of stopped that and I had swum for at least 30 years, but we walk and it's probably at my age better than running, which I used to also do. Let's see, anything else? Oh yes, I'm writing my memoirs. I have so many wonderful stories and I'm really enjoying doing that. And they're not so much food related, but some of them do have recipes and I may have to publish them myself. But the thing is that my first priority are my books. And since we're working on now, well, we're hoping to revise the cake Bible. So although people are still baking from and it's fine, a lot has changed and we'd like to update it. And we're hoping that we'll get the opportunity. But the deal breaker is it has to have a stitch binding. Oh, and nice. Yeah, uh, that people were not doing stitch bindings and Maria had been born when she was at Norton and Marie Bonchelli. And I said to her that that would be the deal breaker working on was it the bread Bible. Yeah, because I did so many books with her. It's hard to remember which ones. And she said, you'll have to take a, a lower percentage royalty. And I said, it's worth it to me to have a stitch binding so it doesn't fall apart. Well, thank you for that. As a, as a book lover and a, and a library worker, I really get so pissed off when I see these cheap books, these books that are cheaply made with the bad bindings, and it just drives me insane. Well, this is the thing that I was tired of seeing my books in pieces, and of course, yeah. maybe that's why the Cake Bible is in its 36th printing, is it? We lose track, 56th? I can't believe it. I forgot. I think it's a 56th printing. But the thing is that people... They don't seem to mind, but I mind because I think a book of this size needs to have a stitch binding. So, absolutely, absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah, and so she agreed to to the stitch binding um, if I took the lower royalty, which I did, and then the production manager, after many printings, died or got so sick I knew he wouldn't live, and they had somebody new, and I, I always asked to see the next printing, and it wasn't stitched. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and instead of going totally haywire, I wrote to them and I said, look, uh, here's the deal. And this is the way it was. And this is the promise. 
And they wrote back to me saying, we didn't know, and we will recall the books if you insist, but we will definitely stitch the next binding, the next printing. And I said, okay, I understand. I'm not going to ask you to do a recall if you guarantee me that you'll continue doing it. So now every time there's a new printing, I want to see that it's stitched, that there's no change. I mean, they, pr they probably reimbursed me for what it would have been a higher royalty, but I didn't care. The point is, I was tired of seeing my books falling apart. Well, books, I mean, cookbooks specifically get used a lot and they get opened, you know, and I mean, if you use them at all, you, you would know. This is their argument. They said medical books were not stitched. And I said, how do you, how many times is it uh, Whereas people bake for my books, it's not just one time that they look at it. It's so not at all the same thing. Argument. It's mm -hmm. not at all. Also, libraries, you know, ship them internally to different branches and they don't survive long term if they're not stitch binding. Another thing is that you can lay a stitch binding book flat, whereas you yes. can't the test. And they said, well, our gluing is much better now, but is it going to stand the test of the ages? Like the Cake Bible was printed, was published in 1988. So, and I still have my first copy that has not fallen apart because I don't use it because I want it to last. But otherwise, yeah. I probably have to give it to somebody not to stitch it, but to re-glue it. They say glue is better these days. I mean, to me, no argument is valid. <laughs> not when, when a book is gone through so many printings it just and it's now actually it got the award from iacp international association of specialty what no what is it called <laughs> it's gotten so many names i've forgotten but it's our major cookbook um, group and it got uh into the what is it called again when a book go, i can't you know i don't even have it upstairs it's on the wall where it gets the honor of being in the books that are well there's a word for it so <clears throat> i'm i can't i'm blanking on that yeah. unfortunately i'll think of it as soon as we're off i'm sure <laughs> i'll think hey, of it as soon as i'll think of it an hour from now that ways because it you know to my mind it, it broke new barriers of cookbook writing people have been writing differently since and in fact it has ounces and grams but this is one of my big arguments as i mentioned before <clears throat> ounces if something is rounded off to the nearest quarter ounce, that's already seven grams. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of grams. So the first, when I first started publishing with Wiley, I think it was, they allowed me to have uh, grams and ounces, but the volume had to come first. And then my next book, I was allowed to put the grams before the ounces. And finally, I was able to get rid of the ounces completely. And I was so thrilled, you know, because that's the way it should be. It's the that's only way. I think that's the standard now. It seems like everything's in grams now. I, I feel well, it's like it's that way. They make scales that have like trans, they easily transfer between ounces and grams. And once people realize how much easier it is to round off to grams and how much more accurate. It seems like all bread books now are doing weights now rather than just, you know, Good. cut measurements. Well, I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. This has been the honor of my life. And I've really enjoyed getting to email you and talk to you. I've really enjoyed getting to have a chance to get to know you. It's been really wonderful. I feel the same way. And you're the first person that we're doing, we're talking about the new book with. I'm very honored for that. And I thank you very much. It's a wonderful book. And I look forward to making many cookies for my family. They're already, I've been kind of looking over it with my wife and letting her pick some out. We're putting post-it notes through it. And I'm looking with my stepdaughter and I'm going to make some with her too. So this has been a kind of a nice family book for us. I'm so glad you were able to get it before the, um, 
before it actually the official publication so you have it for the holidays well i don't have it yet i'm going to order it when it comes out um i'm going to pre-order it but uh I, I i printed it out and i have like a couple binder clips on it <laughs> and so well i should tell you and i'm sure everybody else will be interested to know that if you pre-order then you will be able to get the missing chapter of the savories oh and nice we're talking about that how the book got too big and how we had to cut so we decided what we would cut is the savory chapter and it's not the best recipes so. Well, I've had, I, not yours, of course, but I've had savory cookies in the past, and I love them with wine. They're so delicious. Yeah, they're some of the most fun cookies. So, yeah, yeah be sure and subscribe. Well, of course, you can get them from me, too. Yeah. And we're going to be offering the first one just because it's not actually savory, but it's one of the ones that, oh, no, actually, I'm sorry, I backtrack, because we're, the one that we're offering ahead is the the lemon butter bars and that's not savory at all it's just fabulous yeah that looks like a really beautiful recipe that's one i want to try because we have a lot of lemon lovers in my household now i wanted to mention before we go um you said that omnivore books has many book plates there uh your signatures yeah, is that yeah. yeah yeah i love omnivore yeah so for bay area people going there yes they're wonderful people and they get a wonderful audience too i'm hoping to uh interview the owner of that place soon so hopefully if she's listening we can touch base and do that soon oh that will be really interesting she'll enjoy that you'll enjoy her you'll enjoy each other yeah i think so i, I mean I, I could talk bookstore all day it was one of my happiest moments in my life uh, working in a bookstore unfortunately it's not very lucrative for the people that work in that <laughs> well i have to tell you something funny and that's that my brother whenever i come to california of course i do an event which i always do at omnibor um, he came to one of them and, and uh, I said to, that my brother owns the best pet food supply, uh, pet food store in the Bay Area. And afterwards he came up to me and he said, you shouldn't have said that because right next door is Celia Sat, the owner of Omnivore's pet food store. And uh -huh. I thought, oh, she's never going to invite me back. But that's <laughs> a testament to what a wonderful person Celia is that she just understood that was my brother and I didn't know so that's the kind of person she is she just does wonderful events and i always i never come to san francisco without visiting her store or doing some kind of event well you know your brother's uh, pet pet store pet food store has been a blessing to our family more than once we've had to go there and quickly to get stuff for the cats so i'm very proud of my little brother he started with one store near the shriners hospital and learns a lot about having a store and now he's up to i think 56 he has more stores than i have books that's because it's a good store and good management well well-run store does well thank you he's my baby brother well rose thank you very much for talking with me i really enjoyed getting to talk to you me too dean i've been looking forward to it and i enjoy every moment of it That was a re-airing of a um, broadcast with Rose Levy Barenbaum, and we talked about her career and her work there. And I also want to mention that she has a new book out, The Cookie Bible. It is out today. We have links in the bio. You can buy it from all major media sources, as you can buy it at all better bookstores. If you have a local bookstore, check it out. Get it there. You're going to want to. Uh, if, if you know if money is an issue, they're going to have it at all major libraries, so get it at your local library, too. That being said, I want to talk about next week's guest. We're going to have Lauren Thomas on here um, from the Modern Hippie Table. 
recipes and menus for eating simply and living beautifully. Also the modern hippie uh, lifestyle blog that she has as well, talking about all things from cooking to fashion to health, a little bit of everything. Uh, she was a great guest. I really so enjoyed talking to her. Um, I got so much out of it and I really just can't uh, tell you, you got to come listen to that one next Monday enough. You, you're going to love it. A really good interview. Just just really solid. Um, I talked to her, I think, for another 20 minutes after we're done with the interview because I just love talking with her so much. So check out uh, Lauren Thomas next Monday. Also, The Modern Hippie Table, Recipes and Menus for Eating Simply and Living Beautifully is out now. You can purchase it um, through all major retailers and all better bookstores. I hope you all have a really good week this week. Um, if you want to share information on my podcast and social media, I really always encourage it and welcome it. I love having new listeners. Um, if you like the podcast, please urge others to listen to. Uh, we want to thank um, Asian Man Records for letting us use their song, Talk About Love by Kitty Cat Fan Club. Asian Man Records is a wonderful label. They have many, many artists on their uh, record label, and you should listen to them. You should buy their albums, buy their t-shirts, buy their stickers. They're just a great, great, great label. That being said, I hope you all have a really wonderful week. Um, we've had some great guests on this week, and I really want to thank you for listening. To that end, keep on cooking. I've been getting